Well, we'll start from reading in verse 1. Now, I think that most of us will have at least one of these at home because they're commonly used in smoke detectors. Um, as a public service on TV a couple of times a year, there will be a slightly scary clip of a house catching fire followed by a nice man or woman from the fire brigade suggesting that we rush out and change the batteries in those detectors. Now, if you have some canny Scots blood in you, and I know that a lot of you do, uh, you will be reluctant to just throw those batteries away because after all, they're still so nice and shiny. How do you know if they are good for any use? Well, you can either use a voltage tester or if you don't have one of those, yes, there you go, John, as a boy, you can go, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and use the tingle tongue test. Stick the terminals on your tongue. Good tingle, good battery, no tingle. Well, hello, dustbin. And that's what we're going to be looking at in James today. How does the tongue reveal what is really inside of us? What is its power and its effect? And although, once again, it appears that James has taken a little bit of a swerve off his passionate defensive works, we should remember that words are also works. And there's no doubt that we need to consider the effect of the tongue because its effect is felt right here and now in this church. And sadly, this apparently insignificant little organ has in the past caused division amongst us, and undoubtedly it'll do so again. How should we deal with this? Like the world or like Christian brethren? When I looked at this passage, uh, when I started my preparation, my heart sank a little because it's a passage that has been preached on many, many times. And I'm sure all of us will have heard some kind of sermon about the tongue. But its power and its effect are relevant today. We need to be reminded about what it does, positive and negative. So we need to pay attention to this and be reminded of what the tongue is about. This is what James has to say in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, so that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren... These things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water 
and fresh. Since I'm standing here attempting to do exactly what James is talking about in verse 1 by flapping my tongue around to teach, as I said at the beginning, this is quite a scary passage. In this book of James, the tongue is mentioned at least once in every chapter. But here we have a most thorough examination of its power. We start by confrontation with the serious consequences of its youth. Use. Oh, use. Use. On the face of it, it would seem that teaching God's word is something that should be avoided, since those who are going to take it up are going to face an additional double strength grilling at the final judgment. Is this what James is saying? Well, let's look for an answer by examining how the role of teaching affects each one of us. First of all, does it concern everyone, or perhaps, as this verse suggests, just a few of us? A search of the Bible tells us that all of us have a teaching ministry in the Great Commission that we read about in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is an instruction to all believers. So we are all called to be teachers. Sometimes this might be to groups of people. Sometimes it might just be one and one with those whom we share the gospel. There's another very common teaching scenario that we'll experience as parents because we are required to diligently lead and teach our children. We see this in Deuteronomy 11. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when they sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Thus, while we all have some work as teachers, in a corporate sense, God has specifically chosen and equipped some of us to teach the body of believers, as we see in Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. When I consider my own position, it's clear that I'm here after quite a lengthy journey of preparation that was masterminded by God. As a child, I was introduced to public speaking in school clubs and plays. As an adult, firstly as a salesman, I had to talk to many different kinds of people in many kinds of environments. And then later on as a manager, I had to make presentations at quite a high level to customers and staff and colleagues. And through these experiences, I learned something about how to speak. By nature, I am a voracious reader, and this has developed my vocabulary and my language skills. For experience, I've listened to literally thousands of sermons over the years, some great and some not. Whilst not as much as some, my life so far has been varied and interesting, which has given me life experiences to draw upon. In character, whilst there are some things I'm deeply afraid of, standing up to speak to a crowd, like I'm doing now, is not one of them. I'm not afraid of speaking to you as people. I am very afraid of speaking the wrong message to you, though. And this lack of fear must be something that God has, has said in me. 
At the time that I had these experiences, well, none of them appeared to have any larger purpose. But here I am today. And that's not to say that I'm not surprised to be here, because I'm very surprised. But God has done a work of provision in me. I don't profess to be anything more than very ordinary in the pulpit, but from reflecting on my life up till now, I can see that God has worked on me and given me specific gifts to help me along in this teaching job that He has called me to. So, God calls some people and equips some people for this corporate ministry. And this is what James is mainly talking about in this passage. But there is a common thread that runs through all of these educational roles, and it affects every single one of us. Since we all teach in some way, we will all face something of that judgment. And this is the matter of responsibility for error. God wants us to be sure that we're going to pass on the right message. And His preparations are exhaustive. He has provided His Word for us to study. It is a sufficient and it is an inerrant. Okay? There are no errors in here. It's a source of everything that we need to know about God. He has left us His Holy Spirit to guide us spiritually. And He does provide us with human mentors to disciple us individually and teach us of His Word to school us corporately. As I've just mentioned in my own experience, He works in apparently unconnected ways through our life experiences to make us ready to serve Him. We need to. We must take up these opportunities wholeheartedly so that as our opportunity comes to teach, no matter how large or perhaps how small, we will use it properly and not foul up the message. Unfortunately, mangling the message is all too easy. Um, has anybody here heard the term line loss? And I'm not asking electricians because it's a different thing. Okay? It's one term that's used to describe the way that information is lost when it's passed from person to person. And I just want to read you a little example of line loss I got off the net. It might be familiar to some of you already. Memo from CEO to manager. Today at 11 o'clock, there will be a total eclipse of the sun. This is when the sun disappears behind the moon for two minutes. As this is something that cannot be seen every day, time will be allowed for employees to view the eclipse in the parking lot. Staff should meet in the lot at 10 to 11 when I will deliver a short speech introducing the eclipse and giving some background information. Safety goggles will be made available at a small cost. Memo from manager to department head. Today, at 10 to 11, all staff should meet in the car park. This will be followed by a total eclipse of the sun, which will appear for two minutes. For a moderate cost, this will be made safe with goggles. The CEO will deliver a short speech beforehand to give us all some information. This is not something that can be seen every day. Memo from department head to floor manager. The CEO will today deliver a short speech to make the sun disappear for two minutes in the form of an eclipse. This is something that cannot be seen every day, so staff will meet in the car park at 10 or 11. This will be safe if you pay a moderate cost. Memo from floor manager to supervisor. 10 or 11 staff are to go to the car park where the CEO will eclipse the sun for two minutes. This doesn't happen every day. It will be safe, and as usual, it'll cost you. <laughs> Lastly, memo from supervisor to staff. 
Some staff will go to the car park today to see the CEO disappear. <laughs> it is a pity this doesn't happen every day. <laughs> now, this might be funny in an interdepartmental memo, but I think the point is made that we must not allow this to happen when teaching others the Word of God, no matter where or how we do it. We are responsible, as James says, in a weighty way, and there are no valid excuses at all when you consider how much God helps us to be ready. Let's try to keep the inevitable stumbling that James speaks of to an absolute minimum by studying the Bible, by preaching diligently, and seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit, and being open to the learning and teaching opportunities that God will provide for us. In the latter part of verse 2, James begins to turn his attention to the tongue's importance to and effect on the body. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, I learned from the net that an average man's tongue weighs only 70 grams. A woman's weighs 60 grams. And I think that women probably have a smaller tongue because it's used so much and it's therefore a bit fitter. It's a tiny percentage of the average man's body mass. However, its ability to cause sin is vastly disproportionate because it provides possibly the easiest way to sin. Scripture talks of the tongue being, and we've got a great list here, okay? Wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing. I'm going to have to take my shoes off. Contentious, sensual, and vile. It's not the best description, is it? And that's not even complete. We can clearly see then what James is saying. How much value there is in the control of the tongue, because restraining those 70 grams of water, protein, and fat will give us the will to control our whole bodies. Can you imagine the value of that in bringing our obedience to God into line? What a possibility. If ever we are searching for ways to strengthen our walk, it is easily found and readily accessible right here, just below our noses. And one of the obvious signs of a mature Christian is their ability to control their tongue. I know that sadly I have some way to go in that regard. We shouldn't underestimate the difficulty of the job because this tiny little bit of flesh can do enormous things. And James highlights this effect of the tongue with some examples in verses 3 to 5. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. I was recently sent these pictures of a huge container ship. Now James wouldn't have had any inkling in his day that such things were even possible. And I'm sure he would have been quite incredulous to see the vessel. But it remains a perfect example of his point. This ship was built in Denmark and it weighs 156,000 907 tons. It's just under 400 meters long. Okay? It's so wide at 57 meters, it can pass through the Suez Canal, 
but it won't fit through the Panama Canal. And they're talking about making that canal wider because this ship, uh, amongst uh, its sisters, these are the largest ships in service in the world. There's a longer ship being built, but it's with an oil tanker and it's out of service now. What it does is it's designed to carry 15,000 containers at a time across the Pacific from China to America. And to do that, it's driven by a 110,000 horsepower engine and that allows it to cruise at 31 knots. Okay, just to give some reference, that's about the speed that you get. Well, I hope that's going to be the speed you drive home at about 50 k's an hour. And the trip only takes four days. Imagine something that size going that fast. The engine alone weighs 2,300 tons. Lots of thousands there. You know, to say that that thing is impressive, that's an understatement. It is gigantic. It is huge. It is enormous. It is breathtaking. And how does it turn? Well, there's the little rudder right there. It does the trick. And this is a great picture because you can see the scale of it. That this comparatively small little piece of metal has the ability to move such a weighty thing. And so just as one would have to be extremely careful about how you'd use that rudder in a confined harbour. We need to be cautious about the way that we use our tongues. Will we use them for God's glory or perhaps in one of the destructive ways that were listed earlier? So far, we have been talking mostly about the effect that our tongue has on ourselves. In verses 5b and verse 6, James gives us some vivid illustrations of how it can cause enormous damage for great distances around us. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Of course, these words bring to mind the horrible forest fires that we often see on TV, and they have tragic and appalling consequences. And often they are the result of very small beginnings, like a carelessly discarded match, or a broken bottle, or worst of all, some deliberate action by a cretin. They leave behind utter desolation. The countryside that they consume, it looks completely different to what it did before the fire came. And it is hard when you look at that to think about their tiny start. One of the great catastrophes of history was the Chicago Fire of 1871. And tradition has it that Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over her lantern to start it. And whether or not that's true, the fire burned for three days over three and a half square miles of the city. It killed 250 people. It made 100,000 people homeless. And it destroyed property valued at $175 billion. We must remember that because what we say has a lingering effect, just as a fire leaves a raw and blackened scar, words have a lingering effect and have the power to make the people we speak to different forever. Unfortunately, we can't reach out and grab those words in midair and return them to our mouths in the same way the little water will deal with a match, preventing a blaze that quickly becomes uncontrollable. If you stop and think about this analogy that I've been drawing, you might 
come to me and say, well, yes, but nature heals. You know, the grass returns, the trees sprout new leaves, and within a fairly short time, nothing is visible of the fire. But is that true? You know, if you cut the tree and look inside, you can see evidence of the fire and its growth rings. If you dig in the ground, you'll find ash and coals there. And in the same way, our words can leave lasting scars. Or, for that matter, lasting flowers. So far we've had a very negative slant on the effect of the tongue. But what do you think might say, what might happen if I say to someone, I love you, or I'm so pleased to see you. I'm sorry. Or even sometimes just thank you. We have this great power in our tongue. How will we use it? For beauty or for ashes? There are some occasions where we didn't light the fire, but boy, can we help it along. It is our lack of self-control and respect for confidences that will allow the flame to spread in a damaging way. We've all had or heard conversations like this. I've got to prepare my tongue for this. Tilly told me that you told her that secret I told you not to tell her. In reply, she's a mean thing. I told Tilly not to tell you I told her. Finally, the first speaker, well, I told Tilly that I wouldn't tell you, she told me, so don't tell her I did. <laughs> you may have seen this poster, Loose Lips, Sink Ships. This phrase was coined as a slogan during the Second World War as part of the U.S. Officer of War's information attempt to limit the possibility of people giving useful information to enemy spies by mistake. This was one of several similar slogans that all came under the campaign's basic message that careless, careless talk costs lives. We might think that this isn't important anymore because what I say isn't going to cause anyone to die, is it? Is that really the case? Well, just consider for the moment the possibility of a person seeking Christ, one who's teetering on the very edge of a decision. We're not even aware that they're there. And they hear what we say. We say the wrong thing. And they walk away forever. Well, that's going to be a lost life of the very worst kind. As Christians, we have the responsibility to guard our mouths at all times for the glory of God. We spend too much time looking around us and not enough time considering what we might see in a mirror. We're fooling ourselves if we think that talking about others has no effect on us. And I found these words from a Methodist minister, a guy called Dr. Clovis Chapel. He says, The fault finder injures himself. The mudslinger cannot engage in his favorite pastime without getting some of the mud that he slings both upon his hands and upon his heart. How often we have come away from such an experience with a sense of defilement. Yet that was not our intention at all. We were vainly hoping that by slinging mud upon others we might enhance somebody's estimate of our own cleanliness. We were foolish enough to believe that we could build ourselves up by tearing another down. We were blind enough to imagine that by putting a stick of dynamite under the house of our neighbor, we could strengthen the foundations of our own. But this is never the case. 
In our efforts to injure others, we may succeed, but we always inflict the deeper injury upon ourselves. We ought to realize that this sort of mud leaves a mark on our character that won't wash off. We should never have attempted to pick up and throw that mud at all. James finishes the section of examples by pointing out how hard the tongue is to control by comparing it to the taming of a wild animal in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Now, as someone who has walked in remote African bush alone with lion, elephant and buffalo, at least that's what I saw when I was walking there, please trust me when I say to you that wild animals are just that. They are wild. No amount of nice kitty, nice kitty, will stop a bored or hungry lion from eating you. And that's something you don't ever want to see. And yet we have regularly tamed these animals for our amusement. Robert G. Lee, a famous American Baptist pastor, wrote this. What has man done with huge elephants? He has invaded their jungle homes, trapped them, and trained them, scores of them, in carrying lumber, in pushing heavily laden wagons, in all kinds of labor. What has man done with many green-eyed Bengal tigers? He has caught them, taught them, and made them his playmates. What has man done with fierce, furious, strong African lions? He has captured numbers of them and has trained them to jump through hoops of fire, to ride horseback, to sit on high pedestals, to leave untouched when hungry beef placed between their paws, to lie down, to stand up, to run, to roar in obedience to man's spoken word, in obedience to the crack of man's whip. But no man can tame the tongue, says James. Man's success with wild animals does not extend to the area of his own tongue. If we are honest, we have to admit that this is true in our own lives. Because of the fall, we have lost dominion over this small piece of flesh. Human nature does not have the ability to, to strengthen or to govern this little member. Only our God, our Heavenly Father, can bring it under control. After all, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Our words are a shadow of our lives. So, it's appropriate to stop at this point and ask, what does my shadow look like? A common theme in books and TVs is the story of that detective following up those subtle clues. And often today, to get our attention, it's with very sophisticated technology. And he's out there to solve the crime and rescue the maiden, or sometimes to put her in prison. If a detective had a record of my words, what would he be able to deduce from them? 
Would the words give clear evidence of the work of God in my life? Or would this, the page be stained and torn by unkind and inappropriate speech? So far I've painted the picture of someone who is applying that ruler to our lives for measure. But as I mentioned earlier, what about the one who is searching for God themselves? Will our words lead them to Christ? Or will they chase them away? This is a most serious responsibility. Let's give glory to God by the way we speak. Speech that imitates Jesus Christ. Speech that demonstrates holiness, obedience, and a love for people and a yearning to see them saved. Let's have a willingness to get out of our comfortable existence in church every Sunday and get out into the world with a life-saving message that has been entrusted to us. Man is sinful, but God saves. I'll finish with this short poem by an anonymous author. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel world, word may wreck a life. A brutal word may hate and still a brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. Let's pray. Father, we are so accustomed to using our mouths, to letting our head just run out through them, that we often don't even stop to think about what we're saying. Thank you for this timely reminder from your word about the responsibility we have for what we say and how that responsibility is consistent with what you want from us in our lives. Father, make us conscious always of what we say so that you might be glorified and that your gospel would go out effectively into the world. Use us as your tools. Use our mouths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.